Welcome to episode 122, Demystifying and Dignifying Death, Understanding the Dying Process and Supporting Caregivers, featuring Dr. Christopher Kerr. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Iriez, and today I am honored to be joined by Dr. Christopher Kerr. Um, I reached out to Dr. Kerr due to learning about his work actually on a, a documentary series. It was on Netflix. And Dr. Kerr is a specialist in palliative care and end of life experience. And I asked him to join us today to kind of shed some light on how we can better support people who are dying, our clients who are passing away, and also the family members and loved ones to understand what's happening in this process, because it can be really scary and sometimes seem cold and medical. Um, Dr. Kerr is the uh, chief medical officer and CEO for Buffalo Hospice and Palliative Care. And I'm just delighted that you're here. Thank you for joining us. So Chris, why don't you take a minute and tell us a bit about your background and how you came to have this really unique specialization? Sure. I am. I'm, I'm an internist by training, and I have a PhD in neurobiology, and uh, I had no particular interest in, in this area of medicine. I was just moonlighting in 1999 uh, to support my family at a hospice, and it was really untrained and unprepared for this work. And one of the things that quickly happened was that um, I felt a little uh, without. I'm not in a hospital, I'm not with support, and I was just forced to be present. Uh, at the bedside of people who I could no longer cure, uh, but could only comfort. And when I was placed in that position, um, I recognized that there's other dimensions to dying um, that are are not traditionally viewed through a medical lens, that there was the experiential piece, what the patient was experiencing subjectively. And it was really my colleagues in other fields and spiritual care and nurses, social workers, etc., who... Um, very quickly made me aware that it was it was it was more normative than not that people were having these very profound inner events, um, which is which is understandable because dying changes your is a vantage point. It changes not only your perspective but your perceptions, and um, that's really what you know. And, and I, I I'm naturally kind of discomforted by this whole area, so I don't have an inclination towards it. But what was very quickly apparent was it so. Um, inherently therapeutic to the patient that it couldn't be ignored. The uniqueness for people who work in hospice, I mean, it it has demands that are like nothing else. I'm curious, how have you kind of conceptualized death and dying in your experience as your career has progressed to to work in this field and be around death all the time? Because for many of us, death is a very, very scary concept. Yeah, I think there's the imagining of death and there's the and the forecasting of it, which is fear-provoking, and it's meant to be. That's why we survive, because we resist and fight to survive. Um, and then there's the actual closing of life, which is less discomforting than imagined. Um, and I, I think it's very different. And I think in terms of what you've prefaced with is what's changed for me, is I think you begin to appreciate it less as a medical event and more as a human experience. And when you view it that way, in totality... It's more life affirming than life denying, um, and and that ends up being more uplifting. And 
it's it's odd because you would think that people do this work were either depressed or depressing or dysthymic or whatever. And when you're actually around people who do this work, um, it's the opposite. They're more inspired and uh, they're often irreverent. They're often full of humor. And I think it's because we also see the very best of humanity, which is what caregivers bring, um, the courage and strength and love um, that they uh, rise to the occasion uh, to stop their lives and to care for another uh, in ways that are very profound. So we're privileged to be witness um, to some of the best acts of one person to another. So it doesn't end up being that way. Um, they reconnect often. They're parent from child. They have, may have been apart for decades geographically, but now they're forced to pause and reconnect at very different levels and to remember and to revere. So it's it's different. Definitely. It's very different. One of the things that kind of is co-occurring with us having this conversation, so as you and I are discussing this, it's mid-April, and you are in the process of releasing a documentary called Death is But a Dream with PBS. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, because I think that documentary is really the foundation for what we're talking about today. And I'd love for our listeners to know about it and know how to find it and know what it is. Yeah, sure. so it's kind of a funny story. I didn't seek out to do a documentary. I didn't seek out to do a book. But very quickly, what happened is I was I was trying to teach medical students and residents the importance of, of, of at least having a, having at least a regard for what the patient was experiencing at the end of life. And the response I typically got back was there was no evidence for it because we live in an evidence-based time. Um, so if you can't see it, biopsy it, image it, it didn't exist. And it's a distinction between understanding the brain versus the mind, um, that sort of thing. So anyways, so what I, I started doing the research to date, we've published eight papers on this topic, but I knew that if, if you're your listeners, if I was saying, well, people at the end of life having these experiences, it's automatically going to be this assumption that they're either a confused or broken mind. And what became very important was then that we also caught them on film. So these are IRB-approved studies, and we literally used a camcorder starting 10, 15 years ago, whatever, and filming patients so they could hear and feel it in their own words, um, and they look and sound like you and I. So these are patients who are not delirious. They uh, had to witness and consent to study, but to be, see them was meaningful. So we started to film them, and ironically, that became that part of the basis of the documentary and the Netflix special was film that was actually used to validate the patient's experience for a clinical audience that largely ignored it. But then it went around the world through you know articles in the New York Times, the Post, whatever, um, and people came to this work from literally around the globe. And then the documentary arose really from the book. Um, but we had this footage, uh, and that's how it, how it came about. Having watched the documentary, it's incredibly powerful. And so I encourage our listeners, um, if it's something, you know, if you're listening to this interview, then this interests you. Um, and Chris is going to be talking about kind of the application of his research to our clinical work and how we can appreciate the death and dying experience uh, through the lens of like therapy and counseling and, and even psychological cognitive care. Um, but it's fascinating. So I, I recommend it. Um, Chris, you can see it by the way through that. You, I, I didn't answer your question. Sorry, it's the PBS world. So if you look on your up world channel, they'll show whatever location and it's in 80, about 80% of homes in the United States with a television. So it's on April 15th. So if you look up the world channel, Perfect. Thank you. So on PBS yeah. World, Death is But a Dream is the name of the documentary. And it's yeah. very interesting and gives you more of a uh, 
view into Dr. Kerr's work. And Chris, the book's can, the same name. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. that. Yes, yeah, so there's also yeah. a book. Um, Chris, tell me about, you mentioned the difference between brain and mind. Let's start there and what you saw as an MD viewing um, the clinical death of the body and then this difference with the mind. Can you speak to that and how that's kind of the jumping off point for what we're talking about today? Yeah, I, I think there's this tendency, we're, we're so overly medicalized, uh, what's a natural occurring process, that we view it through organ systems. So um, we view it in terms of a failing heart, a failing kidney, a failing brain. But there's other this kind of soulful aspect of life closure that has not cannot be viewed it's like it's like showing somebody love on an image. Uh, it's an abstraction, but it doesn't make it any less real or any less experiential for the person. And that's true at the end of life. Um, so th- there, there's this natural tendency to draw inwards and to reflect on one's life and on the things that matter most, which tend to be relationships. And those, that's where the patient sits at the end of their life is upon is on reflection and on remembrance and reunion to the people that they've loved. I'm curious. So next week, we'll be releasing an interview that I did with Jill Johnson Young about intimate partner loss. And we were talking about the ever famous Kubler-Ross stages of grief and kind of the misinterpretation of adding that after somebody passes away, but it was actually always intended for the people who were going through anticipatory uh, grief related to death. How do you see those things come up? Do you see people go through denial and anger and bargaining and all of that in the work that you do? <laughs> Not really. No. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 it was obviously um, pivotal work and opened up good discussion and good thinking on a topic that wasn't even ever explored. So, and there are certainly elements of its structure, and I'm by no means an expert. Um, on the theory, but there's certainly elements that, that, that there are pieces of which that are, there's a universality to. But I think it's, I think if you overly theorize it, you're denying the individual uh, route and journey. And um, no, you know, the, it, 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 it's it, a lot of it is circumstantial and age specific. So do you see denial in a 92 year old? No. You know, do you see welcoming? Yes. Um, so I don't, I think it's a dangerous application without some caveats. I appreciate that clarification because, and I think that's something that we're learning more and more from people like you and from from grief experts, that it's not that the Kubler-Ross model doesn't have its application, but as you said, kind of this over-application of theory, I then could hear how it could deny a patient their experience. If we're like, well, you must be experience anger, experiencing anger. Like, why haven't you hit denial? And you're yeah. saying, well, actually, for somebody who especially is older, it's going to look different. Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's it, it, even in children, it, it, it's, it's, I take care of kids. That's what I, I do here, mostly. It's, uh, it's absolutely, a lot of it's non-applicable. And I, I guess in general, I have a bit of a problem with over-theorizing to the point that it obscures good clinical judgment. I mean, what in, what's in front of you is what's in front of you. And you shouldn't necessarily try to fit into a construct that's, you know, I don't know if it was ever meant that way. It's not necessarily generalizable. And and it's interesting because my understanding is that it wasn't necessarily meant that way. Um, that mm-hmm. it's these concepts that may or may not be individually applicable. Right. Um, 
in watching you do what you do through the pieces that you've done and read some of your reading, you have a presence about you in sitting with people, whether they're at the very end of life or talking with the family members that I think is really unique um, because you're just very much there. And it's clear to me that you kind of put your expectations aside of what they should be experiencing and you're just kind of soaking in what they're telling you about what they're experiencing. How was that different from what you thought it would be? I know you mentioned in the documentary um, hearing from nurses like, oh, this is a normal thing. These are, you know, the person's having visions. Tell me about that. Tell me of like what what you're seeing that a lot of people don't understand about death and dying and what's a normal part of the process for palliative care. Yeah. So, I, I mean, we overcomplicate dying. Nature takes care of it pretty much by itself. Um, and and one of the things that naturally happens in dying is dying is defined essentially by progressive sleep. Very few people, 10% of deaths are acute. Um, the rest of them, people dwindle and they do it naturally. They lose their appetite over time. They eat less and they sleep more. And so the architecture of sleep is changed and people are in and out in states of alertness, and they start to naturally dream very intensely, almost like lucid dreaming. And the things they are drawn to then tend to be these other experiences. Um, so that's kind of what what you learn. And, and, and in terms of being present, what you learn is, in medicine, it's easy to forget that we have a role, not just on the curative side, but to always comfort when you can't cure. And when you're doing that, um, I think you just learn to be present more and let the person define their experience. And that's kind of how it all kind of comes out. The research that you've done has been specifically about these anomalies, I guess, the things that a lot of people don't understand about death and dying. Can you talk about the research, how it came to be? Yeah. So so it's, there's nothing new, essentially. It's always been discussed throughout time, cultures, history. Um, in many cultures, it's the way they connect to their ancestors. But it's this idea that as you're dwindling kind of towards the end of life, that you're having these inner experiences. And it was very hard to get this accepted. So what we did was we started to survey patients every day before death. And we had a quantitative component to it and a qualitative component to it. And we've done multiple versions of this. And basically what we asked them, we said, you know, are you having dreams? Um, and are we measured realism, we measured con content, comfort, etc. And the long and the short of our kind of the, the study that got so much attention was that as people trended towards death, there's increased frequency of these dreams, even though the people who experience them tell them, no, no, they're virtual. They feel virtual. They're measured on a realism scale. They're 10 out of 10. Um, and as you get closer to death, they increase in frequency, but also the content changes. So you're re-experiencing people who you've loved and lost, and it feels virtual. We measure comfort, those tend to be the most comforting dreams. So instead of seeing that kind of fighting against the dying of the light, we're actually seeing people surrounded and loved and often wanting to reconnect with that feeling that they had when their eyes were closed, um, that they were, they were okay, that they weren't alone. And time and distance seem to go away. So a 95-year-old man can be um, reconnecting with the presence of a mother he lost when he was five. So it's really important that these dreams don't deny death, but they almost transcend it. And this idea of connectivity between those we've loved and lost that shaped who we are. And that there's this real editing process. It tends to be the people who loved and secured us 
um, who, who nurtured us. So it may be one parent, but not the other. Um, it may be one sibling, but not the other. But it tends to put people back together at the end. And we actually looked at, we did another study where we looked at in terms of post-traumatic growth. So this notion that dying uh, perceived negative experience could have positive attributes to it. And what we found is people who are having these experiences where the vast majority of people were actually growing and adapting, gaining insight even up to the last days of death. So ultimately where you end up is dying is this kind of paradox, right? Where you're physically uh, and objectively declining by every and all measure, but inside psychologically or spiritually, you're growing, you're evolving, um, you're very much present. And that goes right to to the very end. And if the one takeaway you get from watching those films is there's no no way in hell those people are riddled with fear. It's the opposite. Um, they're, they're, they're feeling something else entirely different. And they leave us without the sense of being alone so that dying doesn't seem as isolating um, when you actually listen to them and hear them in their words. Can you give some examples over the years of what you've experienced, what you've heard from patients, and just kind of paint the picture, I guess, of, of what you're really talking about of these visions or these really vivid dreams? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I mean, some of the more profound ones, um, that like one, the one I kind of talk about at the beginning of the book is, is, a, is a woman named Mary, who at the end of her life was holding a baby that we couldn't see with her eyes closed and cooing to it and referring to it by name. And the ch- her children didn't know who the baby was, and the sister came in from out of town and said, oh, yeah, no, that's Danny. That was the child she lost first. And it was a pain that was so great she couldn't talk about it in life. But here at the end of her life, these, ki- these kind of other lesions or injuries of having lived are being addressed, so she's reconnected. Um it's war veterans who get who suffer from survivor's guilt, but um, are reconnected with those who died. Um, it's often uh, a, a you know a, a spouse who gets to re-experience in very very deep rich detail the presence of the loved one they lost. Um, that's a, it's just again and again these themes of 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 being put back together through love. Um, and sometimes forgiveness. There's probably 15, 17% of them report distressing uh, experiences. You know, you die as you live. And this process, these end-of-life experiences, don't seem to deny um, that that's true. But they often lead to some of the most transformational pieces. Um, so there's, a, I think, in the film, there's the fellow who was in prison more than out and on drugs and um, jovial guy, but then he started to have these horrible experiences where he's being stabbed where the site of his cancer was by people he had harmed. Um, and he woke up for the first time and he really asked to see his daughter and to ask for forgiveness and to express his love. Um, so you see a lot of profound change from these events. Um, but again, it, it's this idea that that um, there's, despite the, the physical uh overt symptomology there's there's this inner process of people that's rich in meaning with those visions or dreams or whatever you want to call them by the way just if i could if i could clarify that the reason it's not like you walk in and people are seeing people all around like in a vision sense the nomenclature is horrible for this because people argue no 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 they're not dreams that happen 
They're called visions because people often think they're awake during them. And by definition, then, it's not a dream. But it's not like we come in and they're awake and doing this. It's more that they're in and out of sleep so much that they're, it's almost like lucid dreaming. So it feels like it's reality to them. To share my experience, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, many of us have supported people, loved people through the dying process one way or another. And I know for me, one of my early formative experiences in this arena was with my grandmother. And I remember what you're talking about. I was in my let's see, early 20s and was at her at her bedside when she was in hospice. And I remember her talking to me about seeing people. And it's interesting in my reflection, because looking back on it, like there, there, there was nobody that said, here's what's happening. You know, it's and I don't even know if I told anybody, I just remember holding her hand and saying, Oh, yeah, and and what was that like for you? But I, I, it was like very weird for me (laughs) that my grandmother was having these conversations and these experiences with people who had passed away before her. What are some of the things that you would like to say to clinicians or to family members to understand this process and normalize it? Because I think it can be really creepy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a really great question. And um, I think, in, and you guys are so much better at this than physicians, but it's this idea that when people are having unique and unrelatable experiences, they're given permission for it to occur. So that they're not, um, they're not looking at it and thinking, "My God, what's wrong?" Or, "What is, have they lost their mind? Is this medication? Has the tumor gone to their brain?" Um, so I think giving it permission. So it's a, it's saying to them, "Look, you know, it's really common at the, at towards the end of life, you're going to be some very deep and intense sleeping, and it's more common than not that you're going to have dreams that are very vivid for you, and you may, you know, these are the kind of things that you know are touched on." It's okay. This is common. So giving it space to occur. And I think really what's really, really important, the patients, by the way, are seldom alarmed by it. It's normative for them because it's their experience, right? But it's the caregiver. It's somebody like you who it needs to be clinically contextualized for. Because it's one, one of their jobs as clinicians is to bring people closer to the bedside, not farther from the bedside. And if you can explain it to the caregiver. Uh, I'll give you an example. So it wasn't long ago, I uh, was taking care of a patient and she uh, is in, she's in her 80s and she's speaking in her native Polish language. And I come in and the daughter's sitting in a corner, stoic, you know, arms folded, unsure, just like you described. I'm not sure what I'm hearing here. And then, you know, told, you know, no, 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 this, this is more common than not. And they're usually very comforting and meaningful. I come in the next day and the daughter's beside the bed making notes because she's hearing in detail, real detail, for the first time her mother described her childhood home in Poland, the animals she had, her friends, her grandparents. And so it didn't feel, death in that perspective then doesn't feel alone and isolated. It feels more of a a rich and profound, meaningful. And that, as it turns out, very, very much ex- uh, changes bereavement. And we've done a lot of those studies. I think our, we have two papers. Our total survey number is 750 bereaved family members. Many of those were interviewed. You know, we applied validated tools like Wharton's, you know, skills of bereavement and grief. And uh, family members, loved ones who witnessed their loved one go through this, grieve differently because it turns out how you witness somebody die who leave you 
very much um, uh, changes how you um, um, uh, imagine and transition through loss and acceptance and remembrance. So the example in the documentary, for example, you, you, you actually this one isn't a documentary. You've got two life partners together. They've been together for 60 years. They lost a child. And at the end of the life, the husband's looking down at his wife and she's remembering and feeling and talking to that lost child. Death in those terms aren't empty. And the one fellow, Norb, in the film talks about it, um, how it changes how he viewed her leaving and kind of restored faith that there's something, um, there's a better story. Um, and she, she was okay. And, uh, and that, the, the, those, the, the implications on grief, are, are, those are measurable. Um, so it's fascinating. So it's really important because I don't think it's something that's talked about from a therapeutic standpoint enough. Um, and I think it, it, it you know, it, it's helpful. For people who are not in the process of dying, we're obviously coping with our own sense of loss and our own grief. And I know many therapists who've had the experience of having a client that they've had for a long time, and then there is some major diagnosis. And so the therapist finds themselves supporting a client through dying, in, and they never anticipated it. You know, there are people who are grief experts and who are experts in this. But for a lot of clinicians, it's like we could work with clients for years and then something changes medically. And now the focus of our work has changed. Can you share uh, some of the data points relating to like the frequency of these experiences, like how many patients were going through it? How are they different through different stages in life? Um, because I think there's something really comforting about your research i think not just from a clinical standpoint but i think for any of us that like it it makes me breathe a little bit deeper and feel like a little bit more okay about dying <laughs> i mean that, that 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 that's essentially the feedback i get you know around the world from the book and from the documentary where it's been seen is that um yeah you you you're you're definitely soothed right um it's a it's it's a very very different version of of, of dying um I, you know, again it goes back to the idea that dying is more um there's this there's this natural pattern to it that is more less fearful than we imagine um from a physical standpoint which is most people it's a lessening you know and it's progressive sleep but also that there's this other piece to this that that is is that that, that takes care of itself you know um but I, 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 some of these conversations are interesting in that I think they, I think they actually belong very much in your realm because there's you know an abundance of data that doctors do this badly. Um, they do prognosis badly. You know you're better off flipping a coin. There's some data on that as to whether you're going to live six months or not or less. Um, they do very little to tell people what to anticipate. So we see people come from the hospital literally every day. Who know how much the parking is and how much the coffee is and where to buy it at the hospital, but they actually don't know what to expect. And from your end of things, that void of information, that 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 discomfiture about telling people and informing them is a void that's filled with fear. So if you take somebody, let's say, who's COPD and been short of breath their 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 last twenty years. And they think, well, okay, I've survived and I know what breathlessness is. Now I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer like hell. And the fact is they don't. You know, they're dying because they can no longer get short of breath, for example. So that you naturally sleep more. 
Um, so that there's this, there's this unfortunate tendency to not comfort people with information as to what to expect. And if you think about most people you've seen die unless they've been hospitalized in, in a unit for something, it is if you look back, it's been anticipated. They, they decline functionally, so they can no longer get their mail, then they can't go upstairs, that kind of thing. They nap more in the afternoon. They're skipping meals. Nobody dies hungry. It's impossible. That's why they're dying, and most people is calorically, because they don't want to eat. So they're not suffering with that want, but they don't know that to anticipate that. Um, so there's less it's, less, it's less fearful from a physical standpoint. And then from a psychological standpoint, it's also less lonely and less isolating. And in terms of numbers, you know, it's nearly 90% of people. We've studied 1,500 uh, over, you know, almost 10, 12 years. Um, a lot of them are filmed, papers are published. Um, and what's important, what we've done is we've looked at the, the patient, not the unit of care is also their loved ones. So we've looked at the implications for the family. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it, again, it's a better story than the one we fear or imagine. And I think definitely the medicalization of death um, is, is, has made it so much uh, harder because it's like falling off a cliff. Um, we treat, 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 even the, in, in the face of futility. And um, then we say the worst things you can say to somebody, which is there's nothing more we can do, which means we, we extract ourselves. And really, um, as opposed to being present, um, we're just there, even in the absence of cure. Um, so there's a lot that can be addressed um, from this, I think. I think there was a lot of power in what you just said, that a lot of times how it's framed is there's nothing further we can do. And then the pulling back of medical care, and then we're in palliative care and keeping somebody comfortable. What you're talking about is a change to that expectation of like, just because you can't do anything medically, quote unquote, you can't cure it, you can't fix it. It's still the obligation of the provider to be alongside the patient in their experience. Absolutely. It's it's what we've done, basically, is we've institutionalized abandonment. And there's nothing worse. So the irony of our healthcare system is it's it's a healthcare economy that's largely based on intervention of doing things to people, okay, whether it's labs, needles, whatever, surgery. And the irony is then when somebody is no longer deemed treatable or curable, they literally fall off the cliff and they go home. And the sad part is that's actually when they may need the most care, but they receive the least. So the needs don't match the with deliverable. And so families and patients are sent home and not knowing what to expect and actually receiving little support unless they're doing something like hospice. The family's scared. Again, they, there's a lot of, as you said earlier, anticipatory grief. Anticipatory grief is a lot of unknowns that are actually known. So we don't empower the caregiver. We leave a void filled with fear and dread, and we actually inflict trauma. And usually, if you think about the loved ones you've died, if you think of when you knew, were told they were going to die, but you actually, if you look back, they, it was obvious they were dying often very many months beforehand. And again, we don't treat that as though it's a natural trajectory. We treat it as like we're going to fight, 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 and then right. fall off. And I think from a therapeutic standpoint, the two aren't exclusive. So the idea with bad disease, the thing that they should be hearing from the therapist and the physician, okay, is that... We're going to hope for the best, but we're going to prepare for the worst. 
so that we're not denying reality, we're not creating false expectations, um, we're not creating an unfilled fallacy. It's it's you're you're actually psychologically balanced and prepared and able to cope much better. I see people die every day, and when their doctor does that with them and they stay with them, they go into it like, okay, we're going on this journey, and no matter which direction this goes in, I'm with you. Okay, that's very very different. Is you know. I'll see you, and then I can't see you because it's those conditioned relationships shouldn't apply to people who are dying. You know, you're you. The, that's why the you know uh, so many people who are dying have to go to the ER at the end of the last 30, 60 days of life because that's the only place they're seen. They're visible because they enter a system in which okay, we're recognizing you. you you've now qualified to be seen because you're now suffering. So there's nothing prophylactic about that. That's actually traumatizing. So we 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 unintentionally harm a hell of a lot of people at the end of life by denying the reality, by not accepting the idea that that we can be with them still. And it's so important therapeutically. You know, it, it, there aren't answers. The problem is there isn't answers to people who are dying. They're dying, but that doesn't mean we have to disconnect them as humans and isolate them further. I think ultimately where people end up, and we see this in our research, what's fascinating about our research, and this was really true in the book, is that nobody denied, asked not to participate. Not one person. And nobody said no to being filmed. Okay? Imagine that. So you're, you could be a week away from dying, and they're okay not only telling, but being filmed and sharing their darkest figures, appearing disfigured, and not the same as they once were. And they're okay sharing because they want to matter and they want to be relevant and they want their words to be heard. And that in itself is telling. You know, when you try to get this stuff through university, there's this idea that dying people need to be sterilized or we can't inflict them. And actually what they want to do more is feel human. They're looking up, they're lying in bed and they're looking at a white ceiling. And they, the thing that makes them feel better is connecting. And that's just a fundamental part of what it means to be human. Yeah, you know, and it's not complicated. Kuba Ross, whatever, <laughs> it's pretty simple. A cup of coffee and being present matters a lot. As we record this, we are still very much in the pandemic, and many loved ones have been separated from other family members that are passing away due to COVID. And right now, our medical system is overwhelmed. So, knowing that hospitals across the world are having to make very difficult judgment calls, you know, a few months ago, where ambulances were going to go and pick somebody up and where they weren't. Um, I'm just curious, how do you conceptualize that doing what you do, knowing that there have been so many people that have not had particularly right now have not had the care that you're talking about? And how do family members and loved ones, I guess, try to bypass and advocate and still give their loved one a connected experience when they haven't been able to have that because of the uh, severity of the death and dying due to the pandemic. I mean, I don't mean this in a, in a clinical definitional sense, but, but we've complicated grief, obviously, right? Is because our human instinct and tendency is to get more proximate to those we love when they're in need. And we've taken away our human impulse to do that. So we've harmed our best instinct which is to care for one another by, by doing this artificial separation. I actually spoke, there's a, there's a great series done called Take 10, 
Um, it's the Endwell project, and and I spoke about this, and it's it's somewhere online because I I think a couple of things. I think we're not we're I think a mis- one of the mistakes is that we can't be reduced or defined by our last moments on this planet, and our work kind of shows that, which is there the dying person isn't alone when their eyes are closed and the totality of their existence can't be reduced to whether they were by themselves or or not. So I think from a loved one's perspective, that's the overwhelming feeling. Oh my God, they're alone. Um, But the truth is there's so much more to that. Um, But yeah, I I think that one of the things that we've done here, which hospices around the country have done, which is really, really important is pull people out of facilities where they've had limited hours and put them into inpatient units where we're able to reconnect. We're able to do that because we staff differently and it's a richer, it's a richer model of healthcare. So we pulled people, hundreds of them out of nursing homes, for example, and put them in our facilities so families can come and be present at the end of life. So I, I, and we're seeing this a lot. We're seeing people who are frightened and I don't blame them. Um, I had this with my own mother. Uh, I, I, I would move hell and high water before I dropped her off at an ER to say goodbye. And um, so I think a couple of things. One is, yeah, you, you can do it at home. There are support systems out there. So if you feel your loved one's dying, is, 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 you know, call your hospice so that you can perhaps care for them at home or at least transfer them to a facility that allows them care. But I'm worried a lot about the harm from this. I think it's going to be enormous guilt um, for people and a very complicated grieving process. That idea of anybody passing away alone. And, you know, we all hear the stories of the daughter who is sitting at the bedside of her father and then she goes to get coffee and she comes back and he's passed away. And that's like everybody's yeah. worst fear, you know, that it's like, it's, you know, what? It, it, it's crazy. It shouldn't be. So tell me, speak to that, because I think that's the importance. Yeah. Tell me how you see this. Okay. My version of this is really simple. Um, your kids aren't teenagers. Yet, right. right? They're little ones. Okay. So when they're 16, 18 or whatever, and they're out on a, uh, on a Friday night and you know, that's okay. And you're go to bed, let's say it's 10 o'clock. You won't quite sleep. Oh, no, there's no way. It already freaks me out thinking about that stage. Uh, uh, and, yeah, until you hear the door shut. Okay, so dying, metaphorically, mm. dying is almost the same way. For you, it's, again, I gotta I can't stress enough. It is to die, you have to first get to sleep because you die in, in deep sleep. Dying is this letting go, right? There's just not a next breath. To get there, you have to be very, very relaxed, to be very relaxed and to be able to get to deep sleep, everybody gets you have to be physically comfortable. So if somebody's stabbing needles into you and you're wide awake, you're not going to sleep. You're not going to be able to let go. You're not going to be able to die unless you completely exhaust, right? So it's very hard to die that way. The, it's actually more true or as true psychologically. So we see people dying, take, being sick takes a hell of a lot of strength. And, and we see people hang on till that baby's born. You know that grandchild on the other side of the the the, the country. Um, kids go back to school. Holidays are over. Oftentimes, everyone's come home, and again, you're put back together. You're at peace. You can let go. You've seen that loved one. You've said your goodbye. You know, people talk about about it being closure, but it's really not closure. I think about it more being unified again. 
uh, reassembled, um, you, you know, wounds addressed, whatever. And that allows you to sleep. So that can also be done now technologically. So we've had, honestly, we've had 90-year-olds and we think, how the hell are they hanging on? They haven't eaten or drank, drank in over two weeks and da-da-da-da-da. Then you put that daughter on the phone and just the hearing of the voice. Um, so I don't think there's enough attention to those psychological people pieces. But if somebody decides to let go um, at that moment when that loved one's left, that's often the way it was intended. So we get people who come in here who actually don't want to die in their home. Happens all the time because they don't want their loved ones left with that memory. So if you were to project on your own end of life, your concern is never for self. Your concern is for others. And so let them pick their own moment and assume that if they died you when you weren't there, it's because they were finally comfortable and they were at peace and they could do that. In your research, you found that about 90% of the people that you were talking to and interviewing were having these visions where they were reconnected with the people, quote unquote, on the other side, whatever that means, but for people that had already died. For you then you don't see death as being alone. So if somebody is literally in a hospital bed by themselves in that moment when they let go, you don't see that as a process that they were alone because they've connected with something bigger, something further. However, someone is going to ideologically explain that. They're, they may not have a physical body next to them. They may not have their child or their spouse or parent, whoever it is, but they most of the time feel connected. Do you agree with that? That, that's exactly what I'm saying. I wrote an editorial on this. Maybe I can send it to you. But that, that's exactly the idea. If we're listening to our patients, um, which we've tried to do, and and if we listen, if we actually look at other cultures um, and listen to them, that's what they're always saying. I mean, and there's so many religions that address this, whether it's preparing, you know, the the, the Tibetan uh, rituals for the dead, whatever. It's this idea that they know that. They aren't isolated. So whether you're physically present or not, they're not alone. Um, and I think what's important is the perspective. They're, again, if you look at somebody who's dying, they're, they're, they're spending more time in this very deep sleep. And when they're coming out of it, they're describing the experiences in which they're not alone. Um, and given the realism of it, it, it feels, and that's what the documentary is stunning about, I think, is that the people are emphatic. Um, and what they're describing as these experiences where they feel very much connected. And again, you can't, again, this idea that you can't diminish, you know, nine decades on this, on this planet, but by those end of, by, by the, by those last days. What you present is so comforting, as you said, when you're, you know, intimately all too well, when this doesn't go ideally, we'll say from a medical standpoint, do you see the onus then unfortunately falling on the loved ones to advocate for additional medical care? Like, how do you see that? And if you could basically have a bug in the ear of the family members that find themselves in this situation where a doctor is basically checked out, where it's kind of like, I've done what I had to do. I have other patients to see. Best of luck to you. Yeah. And, and more, more concerning is that, um, there's interesting data that the more doctors involved, the more um, the family and the patient doesn't know. So literally too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing. So an organ system approach to death. So a kidney doctor comes in, like if you've mm -hmm. got a bunch of spot welders, and it tends then 
to be defined by organ system intervention or oversight. What you need is kind of somebody to synthesize the case. I think what's people, uh, this is a sad reality. People experience illness, including death, very differently, whether or not there's an advocate or not. So I've got a lady over (laughs) who's dying, whose daughter basically nearly lit the hospital up uh, in her advocacy. And thank God she did to get the right things done. Um, there are things you can do. There's patient advocates. You can ask for a palliative care consult. Very important to ask for a family meeting. Um, there, there's the the data is dis, disconcerting that what people know is actually not improving over the decades. Um, our healthcare system is ever more fragmented. You know, so the primary doctor may not go to the hospital anymore. So now you've got a hospitalist team, and then you've got multiple layers of mid levels. So you can actually get world-class, very expensive care and actually understand very little of what's going on. Um, So asking for a family meeting, um, asking for palliative care, asking for a case synthesis, realistic prognostication, all of those things aren't to be assumed to be given. Um, And I, I think one of the problems is patients and their families are overly deferential to the physician. And um, I, I, I think that's a dangerous because they'll, particularly at the end of life, it's unfortunate. I think to kind of gather my thoughts for a moment, yes, it, I think you and I can both agree it shouldn't be this way. And there are medical systems where it's not this way, like like where you are. Um, the importance for that loved one, that caregiver to advocate, to reach for an ombudsman or a patient advocate, whoever it is, to create kind of a, a better end of life experience What's interesting for me as you're talking about this, I'm remembering that when my grandmother was in hospice, none of us told her that she was dying. Like that that's what just occurred to me is like I think everybody was almost trying to insulate her and I I was like I'm the baby of the family and so like I was the very youngest grandchild and I it, I wasn't involved in a lot of the decision making. I was just there kind of holding hands and I remember singing to her and kind of doing things like that. But I remember this idea that she was insulated from knowing about what was happening. Yeah, not, not, not really. So a, a couple of points is I've been doing this for 22 years and I've actually never met the person who didn't want to know. Right. And it's, so th- they may not want to know at the time of diagnosis that there's absolutely that very understandable response. And that is a process. But trust me, when people no longer can get up, when they look at their arm and it's a third of the size that it was, um, they, 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 and they can't stand up, they put the data points together. And one of the biggest tragedies is for the patient themselves to come to their own self-realization. Right. And we see that all the time. And actually, um, again, you don't have to worry about it because nature tends to take care of it, is then your grandmother was having these experiences. So people tend to self-inform. And as you saw in the documentary, even the children did that. So, you know, you, 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 how do you tell a child that this is him? But then as you saw in the documentary, several of them saw deceased pets. They didn't know loved ones who had died. And they knew in, intrinsically that they were okay and they're not going to be alone. They didn't have to talk about terms of mortality, but they understood. Um, so it's the idea that we can protect people from their own mortality is 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 bizarre and it's what's really interesting even very demented people figure it out uh in very interesting ways 
Um, you know, and, and one of the unfortunate things is that a very old paternalistic view medically was that, and you still hear it, is you don't want to take away hope. Well, that that would be great if you could fool somebody to the very end of their life <laughs> that everything and is they, fine. <laughs> and, yeah, and they and they they left us absolutely optimistic that they were going to continue to live, but that actually is incongruent with the reality. So what we do is we set them for up for this very horrible dissonance. So a doctor saying, you know what, see you in a couple months, right? You know, you never you never know. We'll do another scan, and meanwhile, the patient is failing, and they know they're, it's their own freaking body. It's their own life. And if you all of a sudden started to change, lose half your body mass, can't stand up, you know, et cetera, you figure it out. Um, you know, it's, you, you own it, um, both your, your, your physical presence and, and, and your life. And so the idea that somebody can deny your reality of all realities, you can fool a lot of people on a lot of things. Trying to fool people <laughs> that they're failing, uh, uh, you know, and, do, and 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 declining, and all of a sudden they're throwing up or whatever is is just you know, it, it, you're trying to create a parallel reality, and we all know that 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 creating a falsehood is so harmful, and it doesn't allow people. There's a lot of hard work that has to go into closing your life, right? And, and and that may be practical things, finances, wills, wishes, all of those things. More, much more substantive, though, is our relationship pieces. You know, whether it's to reach out to somebody, to feel their love again, to ask for their forgiveness, um, to share your hope for them, whatever. To, 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 to talk to your God. And if you deny people those precious moments, that hard work, um, those, those days at the end of the life, are, are so vital. They're not just any day. And if you create this person that they've got, you know, a thousand more of them when they only have 10, what are you really doing? There's this moment in the documentary where you are talking to a, a woman who's dying and she's spunky as all get out. And you're talking to her and you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to tell you what's going on. And I'm going to answer all of your questions. And she kind of hesitates and is like, really? Like, and there's this, because she's surprised that a doctor is going to actually tell her what's going on. Well, worse than that, she tries to let me off the hook first by saying, now I know you're not going to tell me or yeah. you don't have to tell me. She expected it. Her expectation of her physician was basically, you weren't going to be transparent and honest. And she was letting me off the hook. And I have to tell her I work for her, Right. And that I owe her truth. It's such a powerful moment, but it 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 shines a light on exactly what you're talking about of this disconnect. Yeah. Well, and of our expectations. So that basically it's like going into a go buy a car. You know that salesman mm. is not going to give you the best price going in. And so you go in there basically positioned relative to that other person saying, you know, I I I, I know that this isn't an honest discussion. And that's okay if you're buying a car, not if you're trying to know what's actually happening in your life. What a crazy concept. I mean, that, that disconnect. And it sounds like then I'm making assumptions here. But so as a clinician working with somebody who is at the end of life, wanting to encourage them to self-advocate if they can, to ask direct questions and to confront and be like, no, I need to know <laughs> what's actually happening. Well, 
you know what I? Sorry to interrupt okay. you. I, I think this is a really, really probably the most important takeaway, which is a lot of these discussions don't just belong to the physician. Okay, so they this isn't hard. This isn't elaborate science. And you know therapeutically that you often get a patient to realization and acceptance by by having them self discover by you saying this is a data point, right? And this is a data point, and let them connect their own dots. You can have the same discussions, whether you're a rabbi, a social worker, the psychologist, which is, you know, how, how were you a year ago, you know, and, and tell me what, where you were six months ago compared to today. Oh, you know, I, I, I can't do this. I'm failing this. My weight loss. You, you, they can put it together. People don't just die. People die in totality. They, they don't just die in parts. And, and frailty matters and functional status matters. And you don't have to be a wizard. Like there's a gestalt to this, and I think, and and then those questions that are so vital. What's your sense of this? Because most people, when you ask them that question, actually are more self-aware than we know. They're almost scared to say it. Um, sometimes they're actually scared to disappoint their doctor, who they have a certain expectation of. And so I don't think I think that treating this as I think we're making a mistake as a culture. If we we say this domain of end of life just belongs to the medical degree, um, that's true in active treatment, obviously, and diagnosis and all that stuff. But I don't think it it belongs to them. I got to tell you, I've seen patients come to better realizations after talking to their rabbi or priest, um, self realizations, acceptances. So, um, so I think that's a line you should cross. I guess is my point. Chris, I know another part of your work is attention to the caregiving experience because it's something you've seen so much. Can you speak to that a bit and what you see for caregivers, knowing that obviously the caregiving process can be very emotionally difficult and taxing? What are other elements that you think are important to recognize? Yeah, I, I think we're really in a very interesting time where um, – we're, 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 it's, we're wonderfully focused on wellness. In fact, most people are trying to get a doctorate in wellness, it seems, and um, so heightened in their how attuned they are. We talk about now, unfortunately, caregiving in singular dimensions often of stress and burnout. And um, I just see a very different side to it that has much more, many, many more elements. And one of the things that fascinates me is that hospice includes 13 months of bereavement. And when you go to those caregiver and grief support and bereavement support groups, what you hear is people say that was the hardest, best thing they ever did. And that it's a process. And when you're in it, you may not see any light or anything that has positive affirmation or positive psychology. Um, yet that's not true. And if you think of the hardest things you've done, like when you raise a teenager, um, you know, those sort of things, they're, they're tough. But there's also, um, there's also preciousness in being a caregiver that uh, is, is not talked enough about, that that doesn't deny the, the realities of it but that there's also incredible opportunities. You know, I'm experiencing this with my mom, who because of COVID can't come back from Ontario, and she normally lives with me here, so I'm having to go up to northern Ontario and live with her in a cabin every other, every third week. And 
to have your life, yes, is it a sacrifice? Yes. Am I tired? All these things. Have I had to stop my life in many regards? At the same time, it's forced me to stop. And tending to the dying does that. It shows you to stop, to listen, um, to reconfigure our lives together and to remember. Uh, and and the, the, I just see caregivers finding themselves such enormous courage they didn't know they have to give in a way they didn't know to stop a hurried life, um, to be to be proud and to value these things. And I don't think those are the terms we often talk about it in. And I think it very much affects how they process loss afterwards, um, whether they were able to rise to the occasion and reconnect with that person. Um, and I, I just think it, sometimes I think we should reframe it and look at it as more in, with a wider lens. I appreciate what you're saying in therapy terms, what you're talking about is the dialectic, the ability to hold seemingly conflictual ideas simultaneously. And so exactly. it's not that it's hard, but I enjoyed it or there, it was meaningful. It's that it's hard and there are elements yes. that are enjoyable and meaningful. And I think that is an important distinction. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up that element. And I think from a therapeutic perspective, that's an important reminder. And so it's not clinically that we're like, well, yes, but there's that other stuff that's really hard and you haven't slept a night fully for months and you're exhausted and you're worried about money and all this stuff. But let's talk about the good stuff. But it's appreciating that this is a very multi-leveled experience for the caregivers. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, it's those hard things that, really almost structurally change us, um, giving birth, um, struggling with a newborn, caring for somebody at the end of life, that, that's also where there's the richest of, richest, richness of having lived or living. And um, I, I, I don't mean to make it sound in an overly spiritual or even a religious context, but, but there is value there. And if I think what we do is we tend to look at it at only in the present experience and, and self-assess all the time in that frame. And I think it misses a better, bigger picture because that's not what we hear. You wonder what I hear that's really interesting is that they don't regret. I, I don't hear caregivers talking like of all the crap we do in our life and riddled with, um, you know, reevaluation or regretfulness or sorrow, um, Caregiving is not tends tends not to be one of those things, um, and I, I I think there's value there. I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm just struck. I I, I go and sit on the the, the pre COVID these um, caregiving sessions, and I'm just so impressed with where people got themselves to uh, through that process. There is so much power. For me in the last hour that we've spent in talking about these concepts. And now having had the opportunity to talk with you a couple of times, I think what's refreshing about this conversation is that you carry a very clear sense of peace about this, a very clear sense of clarity that I think is very comforting. And I saw the same, you know, I, I have friends that work in hospice, I see the same in them that there is, like you said, it's not this super dark, depressing work. And of course, it has those elements, but this overarching almost sense of security. And I know my takeaway from this, and I hope our listeners have the same experience is is a sense of security and a sense of comfort of viewing this stuff in totality instead of breaking it up into parts 
and the allegory there of what you were even saying about the human body, that we can't just take one system and only look at that, but we're looking at the whole body and the experience of dying. And you're talking about the um, systemic impact and the, the attachment figures, the connection, all of these things together. Chris, for people who want to learn more about you and about your work and these concepts and, and the work that you're doing there in Buffalo, please share how to do that. Yeah, sure. There's um, probably the best way is to go to a website. It's Dr. Dr. Christopher with a C, Kerr, K-E-R-R dot com. And um, what's neat there is that uh, whether you buy the book or not, it's it, um, it, there's really important to look at the videos of the patients and families because um, we've got, yes, we have peer-reviewed publications and lots of data, but there's nothing like seeing the patients and families self-express their end-of-life experiences. I think it's just a, a very different vantage point that we typically don't get a window into see. Um, so I would encourage people to look at those, and they're on YouTube as, as well. There's also a TED Talk, a TEDx Talk, just my name, TEDx, it'll appear, and um, the documentary. So the book is Death is But a Dream by Penguin Random House, and the documentary is Death is But a Dream. And we're also on episode five of the Netflix special, Surviving Death. So there's a number of things. And, and, and the value there, again, is seen, visually seen in these folks. And you had mentioned to me privately kind of the work that you're doing about caregiving. Can you also talk about that as well? Yeah. So we, we, we're doing some studies. We just got the preliminary back, uh, some of the data back, and, and, and looking at um, how people are interpreting their, their caregiving experience. And... Um, and measuring things like gratitude and looking at really the positive psychology of that. And we're kind of taking the same approach, which is a more comprehensive view um, and, 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 and hope. And we're matching that with also filming people because that seemed to be the recipe that worked was not only having the data, but then telling it through patient stories and adding uh, a visual component to it because it tends to message to a larger audience. Um, so that's what we're working on. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's really been oh, thank you. Uh, comforting and enlightening. And keep doing what you do. And, and thank you for taking some time no, out you to too. I can, I can see why you're doing what you're doing. Great job. <laughs> I love it. Thank, thanks, Chris. <laughs> thank thank you. you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.